In the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, we come to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which is the last two verses of the Old Testament. And uh, there's a very interesting statement made here. We find where the Lord, through the prophet Malachi, says, And I will send unto you Elijah the prophet before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. It says, He shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Notice the Old Testament ends with the word curse. If you come to the last word of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, you find the last word there is amen. I like the way that ends a lot better than the way the Old Testament ends. But nevertheless, he says, I will send unto you Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah the prophet had been dead probably close to 500 years before this statement is made. Now, let me back up. He actually didn't die. He was translated and taken to, to heaven when he left this earth. So he was translated and taken to heaven about 500 years before this statement is made. The Lord said, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Did that mean then the Lord was literally going to send Elijah back down from heaven, back down to this earth? Well, we're coming into the New Testament, which begins about 400 years later. It's 400 years between the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and the book of Matthew, the first book of the New. And we find that Zacharias and Elizabeth have been praying diligently for a child. They were old and well-stricken in years. And by nature, it just wasn't going to be possible, but they were praying to a God who does the impossible. And God sent an angel and told them, told Zacharias, that his wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name John. Then he began to tell him, tell him a number of things about this boy. And he says, he shall be great. He shall eat, neither eat, uh, he shall, eat, uh, now shall not drink strong drink. That means he was going to be a Nazarite. He, he shall be great in the sight of God. And I might just want to make a quick statement here. There are several statements in the Bible that speak about what God sees. And what's pleasing in the sight of God. And I can assure you what is pleasing in the sight of God, what's good in the sight of God, is totally contrary to what's good in the sight of the world. Totally different. John the Baptist was going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He was going to go before him, before the Lord. And we come to verse 17, and we find where the angel says, He shall come in the spirit and power of Elias. Now the word Elias in the New Testament is the New Testament word for Elijah in the Old, just spelled differently. When you read about Elias in the New, you're talking about Elijah in the Old Testament. And he said, John the Baptist was going to come in the spirit and power of Elias. So when I compare Elijah and John the Baptist, I do see a number of similarities. Both men began their ministry uh, to Israel when they were in a corrupt and degenerate state. We find both men to be very bold and courageous. We find Elijah going to King Ahab, declaring unto him that there's not going to be any dew nor rain for these many years, according to my word. That was a bold thing to say to a king. Kings in that day didn't appreciate and didn't like anybody coming to them with a negative message. And that certainly was a negative message. We find John the Baptist, when he was baptizing people, according to Matthew chapter 3, we find where he didn't baptize everybody that came to him. There were those who came of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he said, O generation of vipers. He called them snakes. He said, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That took boldness, didn't it? To tell somebody, you're, you're a viper, you're a generation of vipers. And he wouldn't baptize them. 
Then later on, we find where John the Baptist came before Herod and told Herod it was not right for him to have his brother's wife, Herodias. It belonged to another man. It wasn't right for you to have a woman, a wife, it belongs to another man. That cost John the Baptist his head. John the Baptist wound up being put in prison. Later on, he was beheaded for that. But we see John the Baptist was very bold, and we see Elijah was very bold. He had to deal with Ahab and Jezebel, two of the most wicked people who've ever lived here upon the face of this earth. We find that Elijah spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and so did John the Baptist. Uh, we find that both of them had similar garments. They both were girt about with a leathern girdle. And of course, John the Baptist uh, ate locusts and wild honey for his diet. So these were different uh, than ordinary men. These were men who had a lot of similarities to them. And the Lord says, he shall come in the spirit and also the power of Elijah. Now, one thing to notice, we know that Elijah was noted for being someone God used to perform a lot of miracles. Uh, but John the Baptist didn't perform any miracles. He performed none, zero. So he was not like Elijah in that regard. But yet we do know he came in the spirit and the power, again, of Elias. There was a lot of confusion among the Jewish people during this period of time. We find where the Lord asked a question in Matthew 16, 13. He says, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say, Well, some say you're Jeremiah. That was wrong. Jeremiah's been dead for hundreds of years. Some say you're John the Baptist. Well, he'd already been beheaded. Some say that thou art Elias, but this time has been dead about 900 years. So all the answers was wrong. It's the some say crowd. Always remember this when people say, well, some say. Well, they never want to tell you who, some, who the some say are. But the some say, generally speaking, are wrong. And they were wrong here. But they said, you might be Elias. You might be Elijah. They're confused about this. They shouldn't be confused, but they are. Then the Lord asked them, he said, well, whom do ye say that I am? And the apostle Peter spoke up and said, we believe that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal us to thee, but my Father, which art in heaven. When uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, we know he expressed himself seven times on the cross, seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. One of the more familiar sayings of Christ on the cross was the fulfillment of prophecy out of Psalms 22, when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, when he said that, there were those around the cross, and some of them said, he's calling for Elias to come. And one ran and got a sponge, and he uh, soaked it in vinegar and put it on a pole and brought it back and held it up to the Lord Jesus Christ for him to drink. Remember, they said, he's calling for Elias. Let me requote that. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Elias' name is not in that. Jesus was certainly not calling upon Elias or Elijah to do anything for him. What could Elijah do for Jesus? And then one of the others in the group said, let it be, and we'll see whether Elias comes to save him. Well, Jesus didn't come to be saved from death. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to lay down his life on behalf of his people and to save them from their sins. He didn't come to be saved. He came to save. There's a big difference, isn't it? So they're thinking Elijah may come at any moment and save Jesus from being crucified on the cross. A lot of confusion among the Jewish people, but unnecessarily. Come to Matthew chapter 11, and the Lord asked the Jews a question. He said, uh, what went you out to see? He said, a prophet, and I say unto you, a prophet indeed. And he's talking about John the Baptist. He said, among women, there's not been a man born among women that's greater than John the Baptist. That says a lot about the man, right? Right. 
But he says, but he that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He says, now, this is Elias the prophet, if he will receive it. If he will receive it, in any case to me, there was some question, some doubt as to whether they would or not. If he will receive it, this is John the Baptist. Obviously, John the Baptist is a fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6, in other words. And not only that verse, but others in the Old Testament, such as Malachi 3, 1. He said, Behold, I'll send my messenger before uh, my face to prepare a people. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist fulfilled Malachi 3, 1. He fulfilled Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And you go to Isaiah 40 in verse 3, and he says, There shall come one that be a voice crying in the wilderness. When we come to John chapter 1, you're going to find where the scribes uh, and priests came to John the Baptist when he was in the wilderness, and they asked him several questions. They said, Art thou the Christ? He says, No. They said, Art thou Elias? In other words, Elijah. He said, No. Now, they didn't ask him, are you the one who's coming in the spirit and power of Elias? He'd have said yes to that because that was true. He came in the spirit and power of Elias, but he was not Elias. In other words, he was not John the Baptist. Excuse me, he was not Elijah. He was John the Baptist. Uh, he wasn't Elijah. And um, so they're asking him, they said, are you that prophet? He said, no, I'm not that prophet. Remember in the 18th uh, chapter of Deuteronomy, that Moses said, Behold, a prophet shall come after me, like an unto me. And he was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So John says, I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. Then he says, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's a fulfillment. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. They should have recognized that, should they not? But see, here was a problem the Jewish people had. They didn't know the scriptures. We look in uh, the book of Matthew. And you'll find where the Sadducees one time came to the Lord with a question about the resurrection. And the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection, but they come with a question about the resurrection. And they think this question is going to prove there's not going to be a resurrection. And so they say to the Lord, there was a woman whose husband died, so according to law, she married his brother. He died. According to law, she married his brother. This went on, she married seven of them. She so said, now in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to have? In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And the Lord replied like this. He says, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. He then referred them to the third chapter of Exodus, where God appears unto Moses with a burning bush. There's a bush burning, but it's not consumed. And an angel speaks to Moses out of that bush and says, the ground you stand on is holy ground. Take your shoes off. And so Moses did that. And the angel says unto Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have been dead a long time, but he was still their God. He said, I'm not the God of the dead, but I'm the God of the living. If they knew that scripture, understood it, they never would have asked the Lord Jesus Christ a question that he, they asked him. They asked a question to prove there was no resurrection, and the question to actually prove there was going to be a resurrection based upon the answer that the Lord gave. Then the Lord went on to tell them, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now remember that. In the resurrection, there will be no marriages. You will not be given in marriage in the resurrection. So there's a lot of confusion among the people, unnecessarily, because had they known the scripture, they'd have recognized that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Isaiah and Malachi. He was the fulfillment of what Jesus said. The angel said, rather than Zacharias, then this child, John the Baptist, shall come in the spirit and power of Elias. And he did that. 
Elijah was a very bold, courageous individual, and so was John the Baptist. Now, having said that, I want to look at four examples in the New Testament of something the Bible tells us that's very important about Elijah. We come over to the book of James chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 5. And you'll find in verses 16, 17, and 18 where James tells us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He says, Elias was a man subject to like passions like you and I are, but yet he prayed earnestly, would not reign, it did not reign for three years and six months. Of course, that's three and a half years. So he points to a prayer of Elias or Elijah. I'm just going to say Elijah from now on, okay? All right, probably. Uh, but anyway, uh, he points to a prayer of Elijah. Then he says, he, and he prayed again that it would rain, and, there, and rain came from heaven, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Two things are said about Elijah right here. Uh, or one thing is said about Elijah concerning prayer, but there's two prayers that are brought to our attention. Now, that's not the only two prayers Elijah prayed. You go back and read his life in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, you will find numerous prayers of Elijah. But the Lord chose to bring to our attention a prayer concerning rain. He says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. He tells us who a righteous man is. A righteous man is Elias. There you go, Elijah. He's Elijah. All right, but he also tells us that Elijah was subject to like passions like we are. In other words, he had the same infirmities, he had the same temptations, he had the same trials, same tribulations, same problems in life that you and I have. He wasn't some superhuman person back there in the Old Testament day. He was a man who was frail, a man that was weak, and we'll see that later on, Lord willing. So he's a man subject to like passions. He wasn't above it, he was subject to it, just like we are. But he prayed earnestly. So we see the prayer here of Elijah. It's described as being fervent. It's described as being um, earnest. And that word fervent means with heat. It means with intensity. It means hot. So when we pray, we're to pray with emotion. We're to pray with passion. We're just not to say words, you know, we've heard other people say. We're not to repeat things just for the sake of repetition. We're not just to go through the motions, in other words. When we pray, we're to be praying from down deep within our heart, within our soul. In the book of Romans over here, in Romans uh, 12, you'll find where Paul tells the Romans that they should be not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit. And in 1 Peter 1.22, he says, We're to love the brethren with a pure heart fervently. 1 Peter 4 and 8, he says, that we are to have charity one to another, fervent charity toward one another, for charity covereth the multitude of sin. And I just want to mention those verses here for a moment, because as God's child, you are to have a fervent heart to love God's people with. You're to have a fervent spirit to serve Him with. You are to have a fervent prayer when you communicate with Him, and you'd have fervent charity. Now let's just think of everybody here this morning as fervent in heart, fervent in spirit, fervent in charity, and fervent in prayer. You think that'd make a difference? You think that'd make a difference within the congregation, within the church? If we all followed those commandments there to be fervent in spirit? Or, so let's just ask ourselves that question. Am I fervent in spirit? Am I fervent in my uh, love to my brethren? Am I fervent in charity? And is my prayer an example of a fervent prayer that's effectual? He says, that's the way it shouldn't be. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It doesn't just avail a little bit. It avails a great deal. 
Well, somebody tells you that prayer really doesn't change things. You just quote them this verse. This verse says it avails much, not just a little bit. It avails much. Then he prayed earnestly. Now, the most effectual fervent prayer I believe I could ever point to you is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was never a prayer Jesus prayed that was not answered just like Jesus prayed it because he always prayed it perfectly according to the Father's will. And he always prayed earnestly. You look in Luke 22 and you're going to find where the Lord Jesus Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to pray three times for the Father's will. to be. He said, if be thy will, let this cup pass. But if not, then thy will be done. And then the Bible says he prayed more earnestly. And he prayed so earnestly that he sweat. And those drops of sweat were like great drops of blood. That gives you the intensity of the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. But see, I'm sure I cannot pray like Jesus. But James tells me I can pray like Elijah. Elijah was a sinful man. Elijah had a sinful nature, just like you, just like me. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, it avails much. He prayed more earnestly that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three years and six months. Now we notice here how the Lord gave specifics about when it was going to rain, when it was not going to rain. He put the limits on it. Three years and six months. It didn't rain for three years and seven months. It didn't rain for three years and six months. That's exactly what Elijah said. And we go to 1 Kings chapter 17. And here you'll find in 1 Kings 17 where Elijah comes to Ahab, that wicked king, who had done more abominable acts, who was guilty of more um, evil things than any king that ever went before him. And he comes to Ahab. And he says to Ahab, he says, As the Lord thy God liveth, of whom I stand. He says, I stand before this God. He said, There shall neither be dew nor rain these years, not these days, these weeks, so much, but these years, but according to my word. Now, how would you like the weatherman to come on today and tell you it's not going to rain for three and a half years? Of course, uh, we wouldn't believe him anyway, but uh, anyway... <laughs> You know, I think we need to cut the weatherman a little slack from time to time. Obviously, he can't control these things. He can only predict it. And anytime you predict, maybe you'll hit it, maybe you won't. And so that's the way the weatherman is. Sometimes he hits it, sometimes he don't. But Elijah hit it. And the reason Elijah hit it is because God gave him the information. He said, it's not going to rain for three years and six months, period. Not three years and five months or three years and seven. For three years and six months, it's not going to rain. When I go back and look at the days of Noah and the ark and the flood, I read in Genesis 7 and 4 where the Lord tells Noah, I will cause it to rain. And he told Noah it would rain for 40 days and 40 nights. How long did it rain? 39 days or 41 days? No, it rained 40 days, didn't it? Because that's what the Lord said. He said it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord caused it to rain and the Lord started the rain and stopped the rain exactly like he said. And so it was in the days of Elijah. He then points to another day uh, in his prayer. He says, then he prayed again that it would rain. And it rained from heaven and the earth brought forth its fruit. So I come over here and I look in the last part of 1 Kings 18. And we skipped a whole lot of good stuff there in 17 and 18. We come over here to 18 and we find where Elijah goes on top of Mount Carmel. 
And he's on top of Mount Carmel. There's Elijah, uh, there's Ahab with him, and there's a servant with him. And he tells the servant, he says, go and look out over the sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And tell me what you see. And he went and looked and says, I don't see anything. He told him to go again. This happened six times. Didn't see anything six times. But he said, I want you to go to seventh time. And when he's telling the servant this, we find where Ahab is eating and drinking, but Elijah is bent over with his head between his knees. In other words, a posture of prayer. That's the difference between the two men, between Elijah and Ahab. Ahab's just enjoying carnal delights over here, but Elijah is concerned with the will of God. And Elijah must have been praying it was going to rain because let's see what happens. He says, go and tell me what you see the seventh time. The number seven in the Bible is the number of completion and perfection. So he goes the seventh time. He comes back and says, I see a cloud, a little cloud, about like a man's hand. A little cloud, not just a cloud, but a little cloud. You know what Elijah said? He says, behold, I hear the abundance of the sound of rain. I hear the abundance of the sound of rain. And all of a sudden, the sky got black. The wind and the clouds became boisterous and black. And he tells Ahab, he says, get down from the mountain. It's coming a great rain. That great rain's coming from a little cloud like a man's hand. Elijah apparently had been praying. See, when I look in 1 Kings 17 and 18, I do not find specifically where it said Elijah prayed this prayer, but James tells me he did. James tells me he prayed it wouldn't rain. It rained for three and a half years. Three and a half years have passed. Now he prays it will rain. And it did rain. And it came a great rain. And Ahab was in a chariot, going down the mountain in a chariot. But the Bible says the hand of the Lord was upon Elijah. And he ran down the mountain and he ran ahead of Elijah. <laughs> it's amazing what you can do when the hand of the Lord is on you, right? <laughs> when the hand of the Lord's in your life and the hand of the Lord is upon you, it's just amazing what can take place. Just amazing what can happen in your life. So James presents Elijah as a man of prayer. A righteous man whose prayer availed much. I'd say that was a lot, wouldn't you? He prays it's not going to rain for three years and six months. Now, he didn't tell Ahab how long it was going to be, but James tells us over here how long it was going to be. James tells us. So I'll go back and read 1 Kings 17. I read where he proclaimed it was not going to rain. It didn't rain. Then I read where he says, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Next thing you know, it's pouring down rain. It's just flooding down rain. Over here in the book of Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Christ walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which was his custom. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ was used to going to church on a regular basis. That's what it boils down to. The Lord came to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which was his custom. In other words, every Sabbath day, where are you going to find the Lord? You're going to find him there in the synagogue. And that day, the synagogue had a... There was a, uh, the chief of the uh, person, it was the chief, you might say, of the synagogue, the head, head person... And there were others, and they would read the scriptures and expound upon them. And they would usually hand the scriptures to one person. This day, they're going to hand it to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, today, Jesus is the guest preacher. <laughs> Jesus was the guest preacher. I wonder if I would tell you and I fall meeting Jesus going to be here due to preaching. I wonder if everybody would make a commitment to be here. You reckon so? <laughs> Jesus is the guest preacher. And Jesus opens the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 61. He says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me to preach glad tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to declare the acceptable year of the Lord, etc., etc. And when he got through reading that, he closed it. Jesus didn't have to read it. He could have quoted it because he's the one who wrote it in the beginning. But he chose to open and to read it and declare this as being fulfilled this day, which meant he's telling them, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And they wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of the mouth of Jesus. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, when Jesus spoke like John tells us, no man ever spake like this man spake. They wanted the gracious words to proceed down the mouth of Jesus. And then they were not real pleased about that. And then Jesus tells them something. He says, in the days of Elias, Elijah, he says, there were many widows in Israel. But God sent Elijah to a widow in Sarepta and Sidon. They didn't like that. Because of several things. First of all, this widow was not a Jewish widow. There were many widows in, in Israel, but this woman that he's going to be sent to is not one of them. There were many widows in Israel in that day, but he sent to a widow in Sarepta there in Sidon, which is Gentile territory. He was not, not sent to a Jewish woman, Jewish widow. He sent to a Gentile widow. Now God can do what he wants to, Right? The last time I read Psalms 115, verse 3, it read the same as it did when I read it 50 years ago. It hadn't changed. You know what that is? Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. He's done whatsoever he hath pleased. In other words, that's the sovereignty of God. A lot of people don't like to hear about the sovereignty of God. I love hearing about the sovereignty of God. If God's not sovereign, he's not God. Would you agree to that? If he's God, he's got to be sovereign. If he's sovereign, he's got to be God, and God was sovereign. God sent him exactly who he wanted to send him to. They didn't like that. And then he went ahead and told an incident concerning this uh, one who followed Elijah, which was Elisha, and said, Elisha, you know, was sent to a certain place as well. And they didn't like that. He is demonstrating his sovereignty there on that occasion. And when he got through declaring his sovereignty on that occasion, we find where they picked up stones to stone him with. So let's take a look at that just for a moment. Let's take a look at that widow that uh, God sent Elijah to over there in 1 Kings chapter 17 for a moment. Remember now there's a drought. The first thing God tells Elijah to do is go down to the brook of Shereth. He says, for I've commanded the ravens to feed thee. And he fed him two times a day in the morning and the evening. And he, of course, he's getting water from the brook. And the ravens are going to bring him flesh and bread twice a day. In the morning and in the evening. Uh, take note here, he didn't feed him three times a day. He fed him twice a day. I am not advocating eating twice a day, by the way. I'm just throwing it out there for your consideration. Maybe we'd be better off if we ate twice a day. The Lord fed him twice a day. He fed him in the morning and he fed him in the evening. Now, I ate breakfast this morning. Lord willing, I'm going to eat supper this evening. And I'm not going to disappoint the dear sisters who brought lunch here today, so I'm going to eat three times a day. All right. But he fed him twice. In the morning, fed him in the evening. He sustained him. But the brook ran dry. And he says to Elijah, he says, Arise and go down to Sarepta of Sidon. Here's the widow. He says, For I have commanded a widow woman to sustain thee. So he travels about 100 miles. This gets him into Gentile territory. Now that's not probably what Elijah thought. He probably, you know, he probably thought this was strange. He's going away from the Jewish people to Gentile territory. And that's where he goes. He does what God told him to do. And the Bible says, And the widow woman, 
not a widow woman, but the widow woman, the very widow woman God has commanded to sustain him, comes walking by. And Elijah sees her, and Elijah says, go and make me, he says, go and fetch me a little water. And she goes right on to do what he asked. Then he calls after her as she turns to walk away and says, make me a, a morsel of bread. And she says to Elijah, she says, I got just a handful of meal, a handful of meal in the barrel, and just a little oil in the cruise. I'm going to make one cake, and that's all I got left to make. It's just one meal, one cake for me and my son. We're going to eat it, and then we're going to die. That'd be a, I'd hate to ever be in that situation, wouldn't you? You and, and, and your child, and, and you look in the cupboard, you look in the pantry, and, and all you got left is just enough, just enough ingredients there for one last meal, and there's no prospects of anything else coming your way. And that's exactly what happened. And she told him that. She says, uh, you know, I, I'm going to make this one last meal. And he says, that's all right. Go and do as thou hast said, but make me a little cake first. And he says, until it rains again, there'll always be meal in the barrel, always be oil in the cruise. The expression, uh, until it rains again, you look over there in the middle of reference your Bible, if you have one like this, it'll tell you that's for about a whole year. About a whole year. Now, I did a little calculating just for the fun of it. And if you uh, figure three people, the widow woman, her son, and Elijah, eating two meals a day, not three, but two meals a day, and God's going to multiply that handful of, meal in the boil, uh, handful of meal in the barrel, that little bit of oil in the cruise, he's going to take it, he's going to bless it, he's going to multiply it, that's going to provide 2,190 meals. Now, if you want to throw three meals in there, just for the heck of it, we get it up over to 3,200 and some meals. Going to come out of a barrel of meal, there's just a handful in it, and a cruise of oil, it's just got a little oil in it, just enough oil, just enough meal to make one cake, but she's going to go to that barrel and does that cruise day after day after day, and she's going to have enough to make 2,190 meals to take care of her, her son, and Elijah. I love the way God multiplies. You'll never get interest on your money that way at the bank, I can tell you that. <laughs> You'll be lucky to get one extra meal out of it in a year's time. So Jesus brings that up over here in Luke chapter 4. Now he doesn't give us the details. He expects us to go back and read the details in 1 Kings 17. He's not going to do everything for us, right? He points it out for us over here. Now he expects us to go back over here and read the account. And read the details of it. We come over to Romans chapter 11. And the Apostle Paul is speaking here. And he's going to ask a question. He said, hath God forsaken, has God forsaken his people? He said, God forbid. He said, I'm an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham. And I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I'm a Jew. He says, God has not forsaken his people that he foreknew. Now let's notice this expression. He has not forsaken his people that he foreknew. He says, have you not read, or as it's written, concerning Elijah? He's going to take us to 1 Kings chapter 19 right here. He says, the information concerning Elijah, when Elijah made intercession against Israel... Not for Israel, but against Israel. Normally we think about intercession. You intercede on behalf of somebody. But in this case here, he's interceding against Israel. And he says to God, 
He says, they have forsaken their, they've broken their covenant, they've forsaken, uh, they've forsaken their covenant, they broke down thine altars, and they slain thy prophets, and now I'm the only one left, and they seek to kill me. What did God say to him? God said, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 men unto me who have not bowed their knee to Baal, nor have kissed him. That's God's answer to him. Now, why is Paul bringing that to our attention over here in the New Testament day in Romans chapter 11 of all places? Well, there's a lesson in this. Let's go back over and read a little bit in 1 Kings chapter 19. We find when chapter 19 starts out, you're going to find where Jezebel sends out a threat against Elijah because Elijah's had all the false prophets slain. Remember, it has rained again. It's time of great jubilation. The false prophet's been slain. But Jezebel, that wicked woman... She sends a message to Elijah saying, your life will be just like that, the false prophets, this time tomorrow. It's a threat, in other words, to take his life. If I didn't read any further than this, if I just read chapter 17, chapter 18 about Elijah, and somebody said, what do you think Elijah's response is going to be to this? I'd probably say, well, he'll probably just ignore it. He'll probably just ignore it, just brush it off as a statement of some wild woman, crazy woman, and she was wild, she was crazy if she was wicked but not Elijah. This man who was known for prayer, as we've already mentioned out in James chapter 5, fails to pray. Up to this time, Elijah sought the will of God every step of the way. And when God showed him his will every step of the way, Elijah arose and did exactly what God told him every step of the way, but not now. Elijah, no doubt, is weary. Elijah flees the scene. He travels about 100 miles to a place called Beersheba. His servant is with him, and he gets to Bathsheba. He leaves his servant there, and he goes a day's journey into the wilderness. And he sits down under a juniper tree, and he prays, but his prayer is not the kind of prayer he should have prayed. You see, I see a picture here of Elijah as somebody who's just kind of worn down to the nub. I see Elijah here in a state of great discouragement, maybe depression. He has seen the power of God in, in ways that uh, is unbelievable just about, but yet at this point, a threat from that wicked woman Jezebel has caused him to flee the scene. You know, you reach a point in life where you, sometimes you kind of feel like you're burned out, right? Uh, you, see, you hear that way once in a while, I'm just burned out. And you have time to just tell somebody, you know, I'm just, I'm just give out. I'm just give out. I'm wore out. I'm burned out. Well, I don't want to burn out. And uh, I don't want to give out. I just want to wear out. I don't know how long that might take me. I think I'm getting closer than I might want to realize. <laughs> but I don't want to burn out. I don't want to give out. And I don't want to rust out. Some people just rust out. They just sit on the sideline, do nothing. They just rust out. You take a car and park it outside and just leave it for months or several years, go back to get it. It'd be a lot of rust on it. Well, it's just going to rust out. When people get in the habit of doing nothing, they rust out. I don't want to rust out. I don't want to give out. <laughs> I want to wear out. I want to make it to the end of the journey. I want to wear out. And Elijah says to the Lord, he says, it's enough. I want to compare this statement briefly here with a statement made by Jacob found in the last part of Genesis chapter 45. Because Jacob's going to say the same thing. It is enough. Let's compare the two situations. 
When you look in Genesis chapter 45, you're going to find where Jacob has heard the news his son Joseph is alive. His son Joseph, he saw him and had him in his household for the first 17 years of his life. And then Joseph is sold by his brother who envied him and hated him to the Ishmaelites who sold him down to Egypt thinking they'd never see him again. But because of a famine that has come, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to buy food and they wind up down there finding out that Joseph is alive and he's second in command. Now, obviously there's a lot, a lot of details of the story I'm not going to mention this morning. And Joseph sends his brother back to get his father Jacob. And when they get there, they tell Jacob. They said, Joseph is alive. And the Bible says, Jacob's heart fainted because he believed not the words. And then they told him Jacob, Joseph's words. And he saw the wagons Joseph sent to bring Jacob down there to where he's at. And then the Bible says, Jacob said, it is enough. And it says his spirit revived. <laughs> he went from a state of fainting to a state of revival. <laughs> you know, this world will get you to the point where you just feel like fainting. And when I come to God's house, I come to a meeting like we've having here this morning. And I see you and I feel the presence of God. I tell you, my old fainting heart gets revived. Next thing you know, I, I'm just ready to, to move on down the road and face another challenge. What about you? You can't revive the dead. You can only revive the living. And I've been amazed over the years of all the kind of meetings we call our out-of-the-ordinary meetings. We call them fifth weekend meetings, associational meetings, annual meetings, communion meetings, fellowship meetings. All those are appropriate terms. But the meeting we need to be using, the expression we need to be using is revival meetings. I believe that I look forward to 52 revival meetings a year right here at this place. 52 minimum. That's not counting our extra meetings because I need to be revived. I, you can't revive the dead. You can only revive the living. We don't try to have resurrection meetings. We try to have revival meetings. And that word revival is a New Testament, excuse me, it's a biblical word. We find in Psalms 84 where David prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, revive us again. That meant David had a revival before and felt like he needed to be revived again. And you're going to find Elijah needs to be revived. He, he, instead of being like Jacob, Jacob's heart was revived. He said, let me go down to Egypt and see my son before I die. There's something to do. I want to see Joseph. But Elijah says, it's enough. In other words, it's reached a point where he feels like his journey has come to an end. His journey has come to an end. He falls asleep under a juniper tree. And an angel of God comes and wakes him up says, arise and eat. And he looks, there's a cake baking on the coals and there's a cruise of water at his head. He drinks the water, he eats the meal. God provided the meal. He went back to sleep. And then the Bible says, and the angel came. Now the first time it's an angel, the second time it's the angel. Usually in the Old Testament it speaks about the angel. It's talk about the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. So the angel came to him and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Brother, I'm going to tell you, the journey of discipleship, the journey of serving God apart from God's power and God's strength is too great for me and it's too great for you. But I'm telling you, by the power that God gives us, by the strength that God gives us, we can make it every step of the way till we come to the end of the road, till we come to the end of the journey. Can we not? 
Have you, are you, have you not been sustained as God sustained Elijah with the ravens and he sustained Elijah by the widow woman? Have you not been sustained by the written word of God? Have you not been sustained by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you not been sustained by the encouragement of your brothers and sisters all along life's pathway? Have you not been sustained by your prayers to the everlasting God who's the omnipotent God of glory? Have you not been sustained all these ways along the journey? Amen. I'll amen the amens. You amen me, I'll amen your amen. Oh, yes. Absolutely, the journey's too long for me, too great for me. I can't make it hardly another step because of the discouragement of this world. I'm telling you, this, this world has gone berserk. This world's gone bananas. I'd use uh, other words if I wasn't in the pulpit. But anyway, it has gone to places I, I just won't say up here. But thank God, God is still on the throne and God still has given us a refuge. God's still given us a sanctuary right here in His house, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah's going to now take a 40-day journey on the strength of that meat, one meal. He ate twice again. <laughs> he ate twice again. And on the strength of that meal, he's going to make the journey all the way to the end where he meets God on Mount Horeb. When he gets to Mount Horeb, he goes into a cave. And the word of God comes to Elijah. He says, what doest thou here, Elijah? He says, Lord, they have broken thy covenant. They've broken down thine altars. They've slain thy prophets. And they're trying to kill me. And the Lord said to Elijah, I have 7,000 men not bow their need. I have reserved, let me get that correct. I have reserved myself 7,000 men who've not bowed their knee to the image of Baal. Then we go back to Romans 11. He follows it up with this. And even so now, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. <laughs> Aren't you glad about that? Even now, there's a, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Just like those 7,000 was a remnant in that day. And that's all we really know about the 7,000. Apparently, Elijah didn't know them. He didn't know where they were at. But God did. And God providentially had put it in their heart for them not to bow down to Baal, not to bow down in idolatry, not to forsake him. There was 7,000 to go along with Elijah there. That's God's answer to Elijah. And that's God's answer in the New Testament day, down through the centuries, down through the generations of time. There's always been a remnant according to God's wonderful election of grace that's been willing to stand fast and not conform and not to be, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, not to uh, compromise the things of, of God for the things of this world here. Go to our last point found in Luke chapter 9. You find it in Matthew 17, Luke chapter 9. The Lord is going to take Peter, James, James and John. He's going to take them on top of a mountain with him. When they get to the top of a mountain, two other people show up. One is Moses and one is Elijah. This is called the mountain of transfiguration. They said Christ was transfigured before them. That word transfigure gives us our English word metamorphosis. He's transfigured before them. He says his face was bright as the sun and his garments was white as light. If you can imagine that in your mind. And they're up there. So what are they doing up there? If you turn to Luke 9, 43, you'll find they were talking to the Lord Jesus Christ about his decease. 
That word is the same word that the word exodus and exit comes from. They were talking about his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The word accomplish right here literally means fulfilled and complete. So they're talking about his death, the most important subject in the Bible, I believe, the most important subject in all the world, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus have to die? For whom did Jesus die? What did Jesus accomplish in his death? That's three very important questions this morning. Jesus had to come and die for our sins because he's the only one that can make a perfect offering, a perfect sacrifice to save us from our sins. He died for a particular people. He died for a people that God gave him before time ever began. He died for his children, his elect, his family, his bride, his church. He died in their room. He died in their stead. He took their place on Calvary. And what did he accomplish? He accomplished salvation by the grace of God. That's what he accomplished. He delivered them from so great a death. He delivered the law of sin and death. And delivering them from the law of sin and death and being buried and, being, uh, and then, uh, 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 then being uh, resurrected after the third day. <laughs> he conquered death. And he conquered the grave. And he conquered the devil. And he conquered this world in which we live right here. To get to answer those three questions, my friends, ought to put you on top of the mountain. It ought to put you on shouting ground. I'm telling you that right now this morning. If you truly understand that the Lord Jesus Christ had delivered me from my sins, that the Lord Jesus Christ had delivered me from the law of sin and death, and the Lord Jesus Christ had delivered me from the death and from the grave, then I can face death and the grave, my friends, with a new attitude, a new outlook, because I know that's not the ultimate end. The ultimate end is my body being resurrected to go home to be with the Lord in glory. So why Moses and why Elijah? Two reasons. Moses, a picture of the law. <clears throat> Elijah, a picture of the prophets. And we are told that the law and the prophets were unto John, and since that time the kingdom of heaven is preached, and every man presseth into it. But also, what about the death of Moses? When you go to Deuteronomy 34, you read about the death of Moses. The Bible says, when Moses died, his eyes were not dim, and his force is not abated, which means he looked just as youthful at 100 and, uh, 120 as he did when he was 80 or 40. I was up at uh, Smithfield Friday night and all day yesterday preaching. I got to see a few people I hadn't seen in a while. It's good to see them again and enjoy their fellowship. And I always enjoy when someone comes up to me and says, you hadn't changed a bit. Somebody said, how'd, how'd the meeting go? It went great. <laughs> you hadn't changed a bit. I know that their memory is bad. <laughs> I know they just don't uh, remember me exactly like they saw me about three or four years ago. But I'll take it, I'll just take it face value. But Moses is exactly true. His eyes were not dim. His eyes were just as sharp as they were when he was 20 years old. And he died. And God buried him. No man knows where his sepulchre is even to the day. But the day will come when the body of Moses will be resurrected out of the grave. Resurrection. What about Elijah? Elijah didn't die. Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind. Go read 2 Kings chapter 2. You'll find where Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind in a chariot and a horse of fire that God sent down from heaven to get him. 
God sent the chariot and the horse of fire right down. Got Elijah, took him right up in a whirlwind, took him right into heaven, a picture of translation. When the Lord comes again, I close here in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul said, I not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them which are asleep in Christ, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those which sleep in Jesus shall God bring with him. For Jesus shall descend. He says, For this we send you by the word of the Lord. For Jesus shall descend from heaven with the force of the archangel and the trump of God. And those which are asleep in Christ shall rise first, resurrection. We which are alive and remain shall be caught together with them, meet the Lord in the air. Translation. And we're all going to be with the Lord in that wonderful, great, ultimate family reunion. I really think family reunions are very beneficial and profitable, especially when they're held on Saturday. When they're held on Saturday. But I'm going to tell you the difference between these family reunions we have. See, I have a family reunion every Sunday. Every Sunday I come here for a family reunion. I have 52 of them every year. But you know what the problem is? Everybody's not here for the family reunion. But when that family reunion takes place, I can guarantee you there will be none missing. There will be none left behind, nobody missing. They're all going to be together, and they're going to be in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ, beholding his face and shouting praises to his name.